Good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. Once again, so good to have you with us. Last Sunday, we started a brand new first of the year series entitled Letters from Jesus. Can I get you to say that? Letters from Jesus. The essence or the crux of this series is to hear from the Lord. In other words, if we were somehow able to book Rabbi Jesus here at our church, what would he say to us? And what would be the main focus of his message? Well, because of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I think we know exactly what Jesus would say. I know what he would focus in on because we have in print seven letters that Jesus previously wrote. And I think his teaching, his exhortation and communication to us would parallel what he already said. Certainly the times have changed, but how many know the mission and the message of the church has not changed? The mission remains the same. And in Revelation chapter 1, I mentioned this to you last week, Right out of the starting gate, the opening five words of the book of Revelation tease us up and sets the stage for the entire message and story of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, John wrote a revelation of Jesus Christ. Can I get you to say that? A revelation of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, the last book of the Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist, not the great dragon, the beast, or the lake of fire. It's not the two witnesses, the seven seals, the 144,000, or the cup of wrath. It's all about the rider on the white horse the one who's faithful and true, the one who has a name above every other name. Do you know who he is? Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the opening three chapters of the book of Revelation, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, the portion of the book that we're covering in this series, it is specifically directed to the church. The messages contained in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters that Jesus wrote, they are written to the church. Say, it's written for me. It's written to the church. And friend, this is rare in Scripture. We rarely get a message from Jesus directed to the church. And you're thinking right about now, well, what what about the four Gospels? Well, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us a four-dimensional picture of Jesus. In Matthew, we see Jesus as the king. In Mark, he's the suffering servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. And in John, he's the son of God. And those four Gospel writers they present us with an amazing portrait of Jesus Christ. And yes, in the Gospels, Jesus is preaching to the masses. But how many of you know his main audience is the Jewish people? By his own admission, Jesus said, I have been sent, what? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
He spoke to the nation of Israel. That was his main audience. But in the book of Revelation, for one of the only times in Scripture, Jesus is speaking directly to the church. He has created a message, a personal message, a careful message that is prescribed for you and me. And last Sunday, in lesson number one of the series, we learned that it was the Apostle John the last surviving member of Jesus' original disciples who was banished to the island of Patmos for being such a bad guy, right? He was there because of his testimony, his Christian testimony, and because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He was deported to Patmos by Nero, and he, he was there with a death sentence. If he would have tried to make his way back to the mainland, he would have been executed on the spot. And while he was there on Patmos as a prisoner, we learned this last week, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, remember that? He was worshiping God just the same way that we were on, on the day that we call the Lord's day. And he received a divine revelation of Jesus and Jesus himself told John to write seven letters. It was Jesus who dictated the letters, and John wrote them down word for word. And the seven churches who were to receive these seven letters, they were all located in Asia Minor. And just to give you an idea of how these churches were laid out, what I want to do is I want to show you a map of the seven churches, the cities where they were at, in Bible times. Can everybody see that? Okay, all the churches were in Asia Minor, which is now the Republic of Turkey. And Asia, is, uh, Asia Minor is on the western border of the continent of Asia. John was exiled here on the island of Patmos, about 45 miles west of Miletus in the Aegean Sea. Now, in ancient times, there was a winding or circular road that the Romans built that would connect all seven of these cities and all seven of these churches. Ephesus was the leading church in the region of Asia Minor, and it's listed first in Revelations chapter 2. So if a delivery truck was here in Ephesus and left here and drove the main road in a clockwise direction, he or she would come to each of these churches in the exact order that they're listed in Revelation. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right, I have another map I want to show you. <laughs> this is a map of the northern suburbs of Metro Detroit. And if you started here at Community Christian Church in Sterling Heights, Michigan, and you moved in a clockwise direction, you'd come to Kensington Church in Troy, Woodside Bible Center in Pontiac, Dream Center. There's Mount Zion Church in, Mount, in uh, Clarkston. There's Oakland Church in Rochester, Macomb Christian Church in Macomb, Grace Christian Church in Warren, and then right back to Community Christian Church. You see that? And my whole point in all of this 
is to show you that these were real churches, that they were authentic churches. Uh, they, they're not figurative churches. They were real churches with real buildings, real pastors, and congregations. Now, some well-meaning Bible scholars, they have attempted to overly spiritualize the seven letters and match each of the churches listed in the book of Revelation with a particular church error in church history. For example, the church in Ephesus, it would, be, it would represent the first century church or the church when the apostles were ministering, when the, when the apostles were alive. Smyrna would represent the post-apostolic era church after the apostles were gone and then there was persecution under Nero, the Roman emperor. Laodicea then being the final church listed, it supposedly describes the complacent and lukewarm church of the 20th and 21st century. Personally, I'm not a fan of that theory because from my perspective, matching all of the churches in Revelation with the corresponding church ages does not accurately communicate Jesus' intent with these letters. I believe that there was a message in each of them that Jesus wanted to communicate to the church and that there is some truth and some value that we can glean from each of the letters. So it's not like this particular church was for this group of people and this particular church was for another group of people and the only church letter that we have to listen to is the church at Laodicea. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ today can gather information instruction and benefit from all seven of the letters. And in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at all seven. And you're going to discover that all seven letters that Jesus gave to John, they all began in the exact same way. In each of the seven letters, Jesus tells John to write the letter to the angel of the church. He says, I want you to write the, the letter to the angel of that church. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Are you getting it? Okay, without going into a, a lot of detail here, uh, you can look this up on your own and confirm it. You can, you can check it out on your own time. But when Jesus said, I want you to write the letter to the angel, I believe what he was saying is I want you to write or address the letter to the pastor of that church. Not some heavenly, um, you know, spiritual being. Uh, I think Jesus was saying, I want you to write this letter to the pastor. Now, the word used for angel in Revelation 2 and 3 is the Greek word angelos, A-N-G-E-L-O-S, and it simply means messenger or carrier. The name Angelo, I don't know why that verse is up. Yeah, let's go back to that. Uh, the, word, the name Angelo in Italian and in Spanish means messenger. And so in Revelation chapter two and three, the Passion Translation, uses the word messenger instead of angel, and the Living Bible comes right out and says leader or pastor. 
So again, we're not going to make a big deal about this. You can check this out on your own. But I am extremely confident in this interpretation. Jesus was speaking to the pastor of the church. He was writing to the pastor. He said, Pastor, I want you to receive the letter. I want you to pray about it, interpret it, and then I want you to pass it along to the congregations. So in this first letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus, this letter would have been written to Pastor Timothy, another PT, because Pastor Timothy was the pastor of the Ephesian church. All right, finally, let's read a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here we go. To the angel, or what? To the pastor of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What do the lampstands represent? All right, so this is the one who's walking among the churches. This is the one who's speaking to us. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Good words so far, right? Great. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Listen to these words very carefully now. Jesus said, you've done some great things. Appreciate the kind of church that you've been. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, let's stop there. The church of Ephesus was a tremendous church. It was a great church, and Paul absolutely loved this church. Jesus did too. Out of all the churches that Paul started, and there were countless churches that he planted, Ephesus was probably the most successful, the most productive, and the most beneficial church to the entire community. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, when talking about the church at Ephesus, here's what Paul said. I know after I leave, imposters will have no loyalty to the flock, Impostors who have no loyalty to the flock will come among you like savage wolves. Even some from among your very own ranks will rise up, twisting the truth to, to, to seduce people into following them instead of Jesus. So be alert and discerning. Remember for three years, for how long? For three years, night and day, I've never stopped warning each of you pouring out my heart to you with tears. 
You know, sometimes we just read through the scripture casually. It, you know, sometimes it's, it, we have to focus in and, and try to paint a picture in our minds of what the scripture is saying. And if you can read between the lines here when Paul was talking about the church in Ephesus and how hard he had worked, he said, I want you to know, I put my whole heart and soul into this church for three years. Every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears I had went into this church. And he absolutely loved the church. And again, the book of Acts gives us great insight into the manner in which Ephesus was birthed or planted in the first place. Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10 tell us that Paul took the disciples with him. He had some disciples that were following him. He had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews, how many of the Jews? So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, ch check this statement out. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's a powerful statement right there. You see, the lecture hall of Tyrannus was the most popular educational building in Ephesus. It's where everyone gathered together. It's where they learned. It's where they studied. It's where they talked together. It's where they reasoned in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That is a, 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 was a great building in Ephesus. And with some of the money that Paul made from his day job, remember he was a tent maker, he rented some space in Tyrannus. He rented out the building. And Acts chapter 19 tells us that Paul took his disciples, a group of disciples that he had, and he actually opened up a Bible school there in Ephesus, and he would meet with these Bible school students every single day, and he did that for two years. And because of the Bible school that he started, because of the ministry that he had here at, in Tyrannus, the scripture tells us that everyone in the entire region heard the gospel message. That's how powerful this was. And tradition tells us that it's from that Bible school, uh, those students that had gathered together for those two years, that Paul launched the church at Ephesus. Uh, that they started out small, and then they grew very quickly. There was a lot of enthusiasm. There was a lot of excitement. People, great crowds of people began to gather. Because it started to become such a great church, that's when Paul appointed Timothy to be pastor over the church. They started holding worship services. There were miracles that were taking place. This is all in history. And it just started to influence and impact the entire area, the whole region of Asia. In fact, it is very likely that all six of the other churches listed in Revelation, the ones that we're going to look at in this series, they all came from the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the first one, and all of the other churches that we just looked at on that map, they were offshoots of Ephesus. That's how great of a church Ephesus was. And so make no mistake, it was a dynamic church. And it's clear from the letter that Jesus wrote about the church, that everyone in the church, all the members of the church, they were all in. 
And they volunteered their time and they used the gift that God had given to them. And they were diligent about the church. They took ownership of the church. They protected the church. And they promoted unity and hospitality and care and generosity. And in addition to them being good hosts and mission-minded, they were like a dream church because they were also plugged in spiritually. And they were a discerning church. They met together for prayer. They loved to worship the Lord. And they did not tolerate false or divisive doctrine of any kind. Again, this was an absolutely impactful, influential, exceptional church. However, there was a developing problem in Ephesus. And it was extremely alarming and disturbing to Jesus, and he points it out. He points the problem out. Because in Ephesus, true, authentic Christian love was missing. And now it's going to get pretty quiet around here. Because we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of this letter. It's really good to read through the commendations and, and all of the the good things, the strengths of the church. And Jesus did that. In fact, when you read through the letters, if, if you read ahead, you're going to find out that Jesus had good things to say about every church except for the Laodiceans. Not one good thing about the Laodicean church. So he gives the strengths of the church, and then he also talks a little bit about their weaknesses. And here... In this outstanding, unbelievable, powerful church, Jesus said, your love is gone. True, authentic love was missing. And the heartbreaking part of this story, when you read it, is that they had love at one time. I mean, they had a, a, a ton of love, a, a very deep level of love, so high that Jesus says to them, I want you to consider the height from which you have fallen. They didn't just stumble a little bit. They came crashing down. And I'm sure Pastor Timothy was well aware of the verses in John chapter 15 and probably preached from them often. John chapter 15 and verse 12 tells us that Jesus gave us a new commandment. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. This is my commandment. What? That you love one another. Period? No, as I have loved you. Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And the church in Ephesus had that kind of love at the first when they first started to meet together, when they first started uh, to uh, gather as a church, they had that kind of love because they were totally convinced that the first and greatest commandment that was ever given to them was to love the Lord with all of their hearts and all of their souls and all of their might. And the second commandment was like the first, to love their neighbor as themselves. And yet something happened in Ephesus. The characteristic of genuine love that characterized and defined them went missing. 
this one attribute of love, powerful love, that should drive every church, every Christian church, it should be present in every church, it was discarded and set aside. And I'm thinking it didn't happen all at once. Undoubtedly, the love that they had began to deteriorate over years and over time. Because that's what happens with ugly living. When the human heart is exposed to anger and hate and bitterness. And in this world today, just like back then, the heart is extremely vulnerable to the tremendous emotional beating that we take on a daily basis. And it doesn't take much to weigh the heart down and then to create less capacity and less space for love. And it's the same Jesus who commanded us to love one another as he loved us that also warned us. He told us that evil and wickedness had a tendency to neutralize love. Do you remember that? His exact words in Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11 go like this. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of how many? Most. Not a small percentage, not even half. But because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from a cold, bitter, and unprotected heart. You know, it's my desire with this series to communicate to you the truth of God's word. I want the series to be inspirational to you. I want it to be informative. But I want us to hear clearly what it is that the Spirit is saying to us. Remember, that's the goal. We want to hear from him. And if I could be brutally honest with you this morning, if you would allow me to be, this is us. This is the church that the modern church has become. And just like the church of Ephesus, we are slowly and methodically losing our ability to possess pure and uncontaminated Christian love. I'm going to say that again. We are slowly and methodically losing our ability to possess pure and uncontaminated Christian love. That's what Jesus said was happening with this great church. Everything else that they had going for them. Everything that they were accomplishing. The people that were being ministered to. The great crowds that they were gathering. And Jesus said they were systematically and methodically losing the power of the church, which is love. You know, I can be engaged in casual conversation 
with a good brother and sister these days and unknowingly hit a nerve? And by that I mean say something that generates a little bit of an emotional response, and I am shocked. What comes out of sweet sister Sally? <laughs> An easygoing brother Benny. <laughs> I stand there shaking my head. I cannot believe what just came out. Because that's an indication of something that's in there. And what should be coming out of us is a whole lot different than that. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 23, Solomon wrote, he said, My son, my daughter, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them, what? Do not let what? My words out of your sight. Keep them, what? My words within your heart, for they, my words, are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Verse 23, above all else, more important, more significant, of higher value than anything else I just said, guard your heart. Guard, protect, defend, and shield your heart for everything you do flows from it. Do you know that? Everything that we're involved in flows from our heart, from our mindset, from our attitude. And please believe me when I tell you, it is virtually impossible to love the way that God wants us to love, the way that Jesus commanded us to love, if we don't make protecting and safeguarding our heart a top priority. We absolutely have to understand that our heart is exposed to so much ugliness and so much outside influence that it will become a part of us without us even knowing it. And so here in Revelation chapter 2, a very concerned Jesus points out this problem and then he offers advice on how to fix it and how to correct it. And just so you know, this was a big deal to Jesus. He didn't just say it in passing because he knew this one issue had the potential to make or break the church. He completely understood that if they didn't fix this, there was going to be a huge problem. And it was going to probably spread throughout the church of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget, I made a big deal about it earlier, Ephesus was a great church. They were a powerful church, but they were going down the wrong road. They were starting to turn and lose sight of the place that God had brought them to. And so what is Jesus' advice to them in Revelation 2.5? Repent. You'll hear this word throughout the book of Revelation. Repent. Or turn back to me and do the things you did at first. Now, in a lot of translations, and you probably have heard this, the scripture says you've left your first love. In the Greek, this is a more accurate translation of what that statement means. You do the things you did at first. In other words, Jesus said, I want you to go back and I want you to emulate the actions and the behavior that you had when you first became a church. Maybe you have to go all the way back to Tyrannus when you were just a Bible group, when you were a Bible study group. I want you to go back there 
when the Lord was moving among you in a powerful way and you were so excited about the things of God. I mean, when you jumped out of bed in the morning and you couldn't wait to get into the presence, go back to that kind of virtuous living. When you involved yourself in the kind of worship that revealed that you were a believer and everybody knew you were a believer, you couldn't wait to get to the house of God on Sunday. And you praised the Lord like there was no tomorrow. And you loved one another deeply and you had patience and kindness and compassion for one another. You weren't so easily offended or your your feelings weren't hurt so badly. Do that, Jesus said. That's the only way to fix it. If you can get back to that place where you once knew the goodness of God, like God was expressing it to you early on, that's the only way to fix it. Jesus said, I want you to go back there. Go back to the place that you were at first. Now, typically, we're not told to go back. We're told to push ahead, put our hand to the plow and move forward. But here Jesus was saying, there was a time in your church, in your ministry, where things were happening in such a tremendous way and everybody was focused in the right direction and your love level was so high, you couldn't get any higher. You gotta make your way back there, Jesus said. And then towards the end of his letter, Jesus said this, and I close with this account here. If you don't turn it around, if you don't make amends and correct your serious tailspin and your severe spiritual decline, what I'm going to have to do is remove your lampstand. Jesus said, if you can't get this right, if you can't stop the bleeding and make sure that you gain the love that you had at the first, I'm going to have to come and remove your lampstand. And when he said that, he wasn't being mean. He was telling them that the whole reason they had a lampstand in the first place was so that they could shine the light of the gospel. Because that's what a lampstand is for. It's to be an influence. It's to be able to impact the community around you. And without authentic Christian love, Jesus was saying there really is no gospel. We really have nothing to offer if that love element is not there. And so Jesus was absolutely telling them they had to correct this. You see, everything that God has ever done for us, how many know he's done it out of love? Everything he continues to do for us, it's because of his love. John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world, what? He gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world. Jesus said, greater love has no man than us, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Love is a gift. Love is something that God has freely given to us, and he has commanded us to freely express as well. Now, no one knows for sure, but it appears as though John was imprisoned on Patmos for a little under two years, maybe 18 to 20 years. And after that, his banishment was lifted, Nero was replaced, and John was allowed to return to Ephesus. And most Bible scholars believe that it was post-revelation, it was after John received the revelation, that he wrote those three little epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Remember those? They're small. In fact, John, 1st John, 
uh, pardon me, Second John and Third John, the, two, the last two books, they're only a chapter each. And yet, in the, the little bit of writing that he does there, he uses the word love 53 times. That's all he could talk about. That's all he could communicate to the church was the love of God. And again, tradition has it that at a very old age, John was allowed to leave Patmos, come back to Ephesus. He, he made the circuit. He went to the churches. Oftentimes he was speaking. And the congregations would say to him, John, you're the last surviving member of Jesus' disciples. You were with them. You were friends with Jesus. You, you, you guys were close. You saw countless miracles. You heard the teachings of Jesus. You were an eyewitness of the resurrection. You received a divine revelation of Jesus. Tell us something about Jesus. Can you just tell us something about Jesus? And all John would say was, my dear children, let us love one another. That's all he could respond. First John 4, 7. My dear children, let us love one another. That was the post-revelation message that John had in his heart. Can I get you to bow your heads for prayer, please? I'm going to ask you, just give me a, a few more moments here, and we're going to close out in song. I mentioned this to you uh, the last couple of weeks. I've been studying Revelation chapters 2 and 3 now for the past three months, ever since I knew that we were going to be talking about this in January. It started back in October. And I also want to thank my good pastor friend, Tony Cook, for the resources that he gave to me. Uh, Tony Cook is somewhat of an expert in the subject. He leads tours to the Holy Land and visits the churches there in Asia Minor often. He's given me plenty of insight. When I read through all of the letters, when I take a look at all seven churches, their strengths and their weaknesses, understanding that there are no perfect churches, we all need the amazing grace of God. But when I look through the churches, friends, this one here in Ephesus is the most heartbreaking to me because Jesus called them out as a loveless church. Can you imagine that? He called them out. I don't want that for our church. I don't want that for you and me. I don't want to do everything that we're supposed to do. Hold services, call prayer and fasting sessions, lead life groups. Serve coffee and donuts and not have true, authentic love in our hearts. I don't want that for us. And I certainly don't want our lampstand to be removed. I don't want the light that God has given to us to diminish. I don't want us to be a less of an influence in the future than we have been in the past. And I was thinking about this yesterday. 
Do you know how many lampstands have been removed in this area in the last 20 or 30 years? Churches that are no longer around? I don't want that for us. Paul said there's three that remain. Three elements of our Christianity that will never go away. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Father, do something in our hearts. Do something big. We've been talking about full surrender to you. Removing one more layer, Lord. One more level of our humanity. We can't keep doing ministry this way. You told that to the church at Ephesus. They had to consider where they were missing it. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to safeguard and protect our hearts. We don't want to be numbered in the most of the people who let their love grow cold. Restore it to us, Lord. 